Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. So glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Chris Sitka about women's land. Welcome to the program, Chris. Oh, hi, Beth. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Um, yes, look, I'm uh, in my 70s now. I've been a, um, a, I originally was in women's liberation, gay liberation. I've been a, a feminist activist and a lesbian liberation activist all my life. So that's basically my background. Right. So um, could you tell us about women's land in Australia? Yeah, okay. Well, um, not Everyone knows about it because uh, we kept it quiet for a long time uh, for obvious reasons. So um, it was first established 50 years ago. It's like the 50th anniversary. And um, it was we had a radical lesbian group and uh, which was very feminist. And uh, we used to, you know, talk about women's oppression, patriarchy. I don't think we use the word patriarchy as much then as it's used now, but basically we were critiquing patriarchy. And um, eventually, being feminist lesbians and sort of made us social outlaws, and uh, some of us came... Well, one woman came back with uh, to our radical lesbian group and um, in 1973, sort of late-ish in the year and uh, said she'd found a piece of land and why didn't we buy it and establish a women's land? So we got really excited about that idea that, yeah, we could have a place where we could create our own feminist utopia and um, escape the patriarchy. So we um, we went and found this very... Uh, well, we went and bought this very remote bush property. It's probably less remote now than it was originally, and um, we and women started living there, and um, it lasted about twenty years. And um, at the peak, we sometimes had a hundred women there. It was a very exciting, vital place. It really attracted women. It was we called it women's land, but um, in reality, it was mostly lesbian land. But we didn't actually. Uh, we did sometimes have. Um, heterosexual women there because we'd all been working in establishing women's refuges and rape crisis centres so every now and again someone who needed uh, to be rescued or looked after or have a place to escape to used to come there so yeah it was uh, it was quite a big thing back in the day the hay- the heydays were the 80s really so what were the social origins of women's land well 
it's like I said, we were in women's liberation and um, that was kind of very big in the 70s. Um, sometimes they call it the second wave women's movement, etc. But to us it was women's liberation. So we were looking not for equality. We were looking for liberation from... Um, the patriarchal oppression of women and it seemed obvious when you thought about it to that we would um, maybe just break away and go and create our own society that was fairer to us especially as lesbians we were very um, you know uh, there was not much acceptance of lesbians back in that day um, we were pretty out and proud but um yeah, it was it. It did spring out of that um, feminism, and also, I was in my early twenties. I was twenty actually when we first thought about the women's land. But you know, our teenage years and some of the women were a bit older had been through the um, you know the hippie years, the cultural revolution of the nineteen sixties, um, which was very socialist oriented, very anti-establishment. Um, there was this thing called the military industrial complex that we struggled against and so it and and in that era uh, you know there was all the hippie communes well it was kind of so that was all in our consciousness so it seemed pretty logical to go and set up a women's commune so you mentioned before that uh, at one stage there was a hundred women there but uh, on an average how many women lived there was there a core group yeah look it uh, there was a core groups um, actually, what I should mention, it wasn't just one land. So originally we bought one land and during the 70s it just sort of toddled along and there weren't many women living there and I personally didn't go and live there till the late 70s. We were still pretty busy in the cities with our revolution, Women's Liberation Revolution. Um, but um, gradually more and more women came and women started coming from overseas and... Um, yeah, and then we bought another land nearby. We squatted at first and then uh, when the uh, the owner sent a gang of thugs to uh, uh, terrorise us and throw us off, um, uh, Sand Hall actually went and asked if we could buy it and the guy said yes because he could see he wasn't going to get rid of us. And then we ended up squatting another land. So there, there was uh, originally that, um, not very long after in the early 1980s there were three adjacent lands of thousands of acres it was um you know the mountain i think was 3000 acres the valley was 300 the other land called her land was about over a thousand acres and then there was bush in between that we utilized so it was quite a large area and women sort of moved between these lands and uh, and then later on, women started buying other land in the area. So there were other smaller women's lands in the area. So you could never say, you know, in the 1980s, how many women were there because women came to visit. So it was like a place that a lot of, especially lesbian feminists in Australia, made a pilgrimage to, to visit. Sometimes they only stayed there for a short time. But they felt they'd lived there because it was such an incredible experience to be in this place where you had a, a totally, you know, liberated feminist culture compared to the outside world. So, you know, when I say 100, that might have been at its peak when you counted the women living on these three lands, the visitors um, 
and you never really knew exactly how many were there. We didn't do census taking. It was a fairly fluid sort of um, culture. So what sort of women did live there? Um, Yeah, well, I guess mostly young women because it was a a very rugged place. Um, You had to be fairly physically fit. Um, but that said, there were, you know, a few women who, with uh, limit, limited ability compared to others who lived there. Like There was one particular woman, who um, Jan, who lived there who had severe rheumatoid arthritis and very limited physical ability, so she was supported by other women. She was fairly, you know, adventurous and fierce, but... Um, it, uh, but, it, you know, but when we started it, like the group that started it were, say, in our 20s or um, and 30s perhaps. So it was a place for younger women and um, it was very remote and rugged. So the tracks were very often inaccessible. You often had to walk carrying um, things in that you needed or walk out. Uh, sometimes you just couldn't get cars or it was dangerous driving cars. At first we didn't have four-wheel drives because... When we first set up the lands, the average person didn't have a four-wheel drive and we certainly didn't. So that came later. We communally bought four-wheel drives mostly um, to have better access. But we also had a sort of a culture at the beginning where we were anti-technology, so we were anti-cars. So we were actually walking in and using horses to carry all our stuff. So, um, so yeah, you had to be um, young. Uh, uh, we were pretty very quite majority white. Um, There were very few women of colour who came. There were a few Aboriginal women who came and uh, some, there was a a couple of sisters who, you know, were part of the community for quite a long time. But, uh, yeah, we're mostly white, but we were, and definitely pretty mostly lesbian and um, with just a few heterosexual women visiting and staying for shorter times. But you also had to be pretty tough, sort of, <laughs> you know. And if you weren't tough, if you wanted to stay there, you had to toughen up because it was a very physically challenging life, especially the way we did it. Like when I say women's land, don't imagine that we had lovely, you know, houses with plumbing. It was like camping, basically, at first. So it was like permanent camping. And then women started building their own shelters. So that was a revolutionary thing because women didn't build things in those days. So we women learnt to build. So some of the, you know, little huts that the women built were fairly, um, let's say, porous to the <laughs> elements. And, um, and we also liked the idea of living outside. So we tended to live in structures that didn't have walls and things except in uh, on the mountain also known as Amazon eh? because it was a lot um, higher up there so it was a lot colder and more challenging I think it even snows there occasionally or used to Um, so they tended to have slightly more enclosed structures but um, yeah so you had to be pretty tough to um, to you know, like those conditions. And some women who came found it too much. They found, you know, the snakes, the spiders or whatever, you know, scary. So they didn't stay. So that's kind of, the you know, the type of, of women who lived there. But, you know, gradually women aged and got older and, um, yeah. So who paid for it and who owns it? 
Well, Beth, that's a question that whenever I bring up the women's land, it's almost the first thing I get asked, which, you know, um, uh, which sort of annoys me because to me it wasn't about who owned it. Like the women who started it, we all came from the 1960s, from this, you know, very socialist and uh, very communal and uh, the land was bought not to belong to anyone, you know, that we had this thing, this is land for any woman in the world who wants to come there and what, whatever her means and you could live there um, with, especially in the beginning without being a member, uh, without even having to put any money in. Um, so um, that changed a little bit over the decades. Um, but uh, essentially... You know, when we set it up, it was free to everyone. How we paid for it? Well, uh, uh, the original woman who um, who uh, who came up with the idea and found the actual first piece of land, which was then known as Amazon Acres, uh, she'd won um, some money for writing the first lesbian novel published in Australia. So that helped towards the um, the deposit, and then other. Others got uh, money from parents or had some money saved and then we even ran cake stalls in, in Sydney and things like that, you know, to um, to pay for it. And then everybody just – so it was not hard to get the deposit. I'll tell you, the first piece of land was $30,000 that we bought. The next piece was pretty much the same cost but it was less land. The next – land cost about twice that but you know but saying that in 1973 $30,000 was a lot more than it is now you know <laughs> and um yeah so and then uh, eventually um the three lands had their own structure or structuralist lack of structure <laughs> at times but um eventually it kind of congealed into um, different ways of running the different lands or making decisions, and um, that it was quite. There was a lot of anarchy in in the whole structure. It was about non hierarchy, non ownership. But eventually, um, especially the mountain coalesced into a more distinct group, and you had to apply to be a member. Her land, when it was established, you did buy-in to be a member, but that said, they didn't really ban other women from living there or staying there who, you know, um, like I say, we moved around a lot. We were kind of very physically mobile. You didn't just go and pick a spot and live there forever. Um, You know, very few women did that. We sort of moved around. So um, the the lands are still there, um, though no one lives there anymore. Um, and they're still run by their own little collectives that have, you know, slightly different um, rules or structures or ideas, yeah. What did you do there? Yeah, well, <laughs> so we, we used to get asked that a lot, you know, because, uh, gee, what would you do there, you know? Um, well, actually, it was quite a busy life. Um, we um, we. Uh, enjoyed nature. We were out in the bush, in the wild. We liked that. We had a lot of political discussions. We were still very political. And, uh, for example, um, early on, especially in the valley, there was a lot of discussion about plastic and manufactured products. And uh, especially in the valley, we became very um, essentialist and anti-technological and 
Uh, so at one point we banned plastic. So you just didn't bring any plastic. And I don't mean just plastic bags. I mean plastic clothes like, uh, you know, it was wool or cotton and blankets were wool. Uh, they weren't, you know, synthetic. And, um, yeah, we we didn't use any uh, – And look, in the beginning there was a lot less plastic around than there is now too. It was easier. But um, that, that was controversial. So you didn't have a torch because a torch often had plastic in it. And we also, um, you know, were um, – against uh, machines so you know we didn't use chainsaws we sawed wood by hand we carried things we used horse horses were a big part of the culture and um so we used horses often like we might have, we we did have a car but you didn't bring it in at that stage they did always have car up cars up the mountain um but um yeah, but, but minim- we tried to mim- minimise cars. Later we made a rule that there were certain car days and no car days, so you could have that, you know, the nature free of the sound of the, you know, the motor coming in. wasn't always popular with everyone, <laughs> but, you know, um, the collective decision about when you could go to town and bring your supplies back or whatever. Um, but, yeah, political discussions took a lot of time. And uh, we also, like, went on little expeditions, you know. We just sort of all settle up horses and, and, oh, yeah, we didn't use bits and reins, you know. It was like bareback, just hang on to a little rope halter when you rode a horse and hope it didn't break because you wove it yourself. And um, so we would just say, oh, look, there's a lovely spot on the creek way up. Whoopity whoop, you know, and so we'd all go and camp there together. Or when Haley's Comet came, for example, everybody went up the top of her land to have a good view of Haley's Comet. We had a Haley's Comet party up there. So, uh, and there was a lot of art and craft happening too, you know, uh, screen printing t shirts, making posters, um, the newsletters, things like that. It was uh, pretty busy. And if it was someone's birthday, you made them a present. You never bought one. So if there was, you imagine if there's a lot of women there, it's somebody's birthday at least once a week, you know. So you were busy making little, I used to, made little wood dragons and we made uh, little candle lanterns out of tin cans so that we could walk around at night with a candle lantern instead of uh, a self-made one instead of using a torch, that sort of thing. So, yeah, we were kind of trying to get away from the military-industrial complex. So, you know, we were a bit Luddite. Um, wasn't, not everyone agreed with it, but, yeah, it was part of the culture. Uh, so have you dropped out of activism now? Um well, no, I haven't, and we didn't when we lived on the land. Um, see, this was a, a bit of uh, controversy politically at the time. Um, uh, some some of the, you know, women's liberationists who were in the city were very critical of us and saying, you know, we should be at the at the front fighting the patriarchy and going to the demonstrations, which we'd all done when we were, uh, well, most of the women who came to the land had been active in that. Um, and um, but we didn't really drop out. To us, what we were doing was political. It was saying if you criticise, you know, the patriarchal military industrial complex, what do you want to replace it with? Do you just want to fight against it blind, or do you want a vision of what you want to create? And we did have a vision of what we wanted to create. So that's what we were doing, though. Um, you know, some some others 
in the city thought that that wasn't okay. But we also organised things. Um, in the 80s, Women for Survival was the big thing in the women's movement. Well, you know, there was a more liberal women's movement in the city, but um, it was... And Women for Survival was against nuclear um, armament and warfare. And uh, there were a lot of demonstrations and big actions that were happening in America, in the UK, in Europe, and including in Australia. And a lot of the Women for Survival um, movement was organised actually on the women's land. And we used to you know, do the newsletter. It was all hand-drawn and handwritten and taken somewhere to get printed somehow. Um, And, you know, we would all go off to the um, occupation. There was a big thing at Pine Gap in Alice Springs against the American nuclear base there. Then everyone hopped on buses and went over to uh, Western Australia and protested at Coburn Sound. So, you know, we were still active. And then when it was 1988 and the uh, the bicentennial of the occupation of Australia by the colonial forces, um, you know, women all went and demonstrated with the Aboriginal people against that big celebration. Yeah, so we did do stuff. What's happening there now? Well, um... Now there's no one living there. Um, the land is still there. It's still, we keep it, um, we have little maintenance collectives and we keep it, you know, the roads paid, the roads open, which is quite a bit of work. So there's a few uh, women still dedicated to that and uh, we can still visit there, women can visit there um, with, you know, first you have to find out where it is and get permission. The gates are locked. Um um, but, um, yeah, and occasionally we, you know, take younger women there to see, you know, talk about the history and uh, they're supportive of it. it. It doesn't seem to be culturally the time now where anyone wants to live there. Um, yeah, it's, you know, things are, are different nowadays and actually it's not as remote now. You know, when I go there now, it doesn't feel nearly as remote as it did when we ventured out there in the early days. In fact, the last I was there just this year and they were grading the main road, you know, to our tracks there and I thought, oh, well, there'll be more traffic along here now. Um, but really it's lying fallow and, you know, you could say it's a nature reserve really that, at the moment. Why did the communal living end? Well, that's a big question <laughs> and, um, and I could probably spend a whole session just talking about that, but... Probably the short answer is, um, you know, the patriarchy isn't just something outside. It lives inside you as well. It's done damage to women and, um, and uh, you know, women still suffer from a lot of um, uh, pain and damage from patriarchy. And uh, so we, you know, we did... Uh, have a lot of conflicts like any communal <laughs> or commune group does and and um, eventually uh, women just started slipping away. Maybe when they were young it was okay to, you know, live this kind of idealistic life but later um, they went away and did other things and some of the conflicts in the group, you know, drove people away and and it seemed that by the 1990s there were very few women living there and then eventually there were none. It, it, it might be that it was a zeitgeist of the time, of the 1970s, because um, 
really these women's lands sprang up all over um, all over the Western world, not not the non-Western world. Obviously, it was a privileged world where people, you know, where women had some resources, even though we didn't feel as privileged, but we did. And um, yeah, so there was a whole movement that sprang up at that time in history, and uh, I find now. Um, even with um, keen young feminists, they don't kind of have this concept of doing things together in actual physical person. You know, there's too much, um, in my opinion, acti- uh, activism on the internet, but without real contact. And um, so that concept, and and also as lesbians, we were driven together by a hostile world. You know, it's become less hostile for lesbians. They mix more freely in. Um, in straight society, so they don't have as much of a need to have a safe space that we had. I think, you know, a lot of women came there for a, a, a safe place to be. So what is Women's Land, Land's legacy and place in history? Yeah, well, um, that, I, I think, um, you know, you can say, oh, okay, we started a women's land, we were sort of happy, we were happy there for a while, then it, you know, it sort of broke apart and um, that's just history and, and, you know, we are, do seem to be being studied off, you know, young women come to us and want to write and we're writing our own story and um, so... Uh, it's more like we're a historical phenomenon now, which seems strange to me because I'm still alive and vital. <laughs> and um, and um, Sand Hall has put out a collection of books of stories written by women who live on the land. She's curated it and self-published it. It's not available. Um, you know, you really have to go to her Shell Publishing, it's called, S-H-A-L-L. Um, and... Uh, and there's three volumes now of stories that we've written and it's best if you're interested in the story of the women's land to get it from us because other things that have been written and uh, portrayed about us are quite distorted and even there's a couple of podcasts on the ABC but, you know, they have a, a, a very different approach and... Um, they interviewed our neighbours who we didn't always <laughs> get on with and things like that. Um, so it isn't really as much of a history. But I guess the legacy is that we did um, we did create a model for another way of life and a different value system than we are forced to live in. And, um, and also we created a lot of very strong women who really freed themselves from the constraints of um, sex role conditioning, basically, because in the 70s, you know, there weren't a lot of options for women and uh, we sort of went there and we became strong, we became free, we we constructed our own society, we stopped judging each other, you know, other women by what they wear. I mean, I guess we had our own sort of culture there, but... Um, you know, it was one in which women were pretty well freed from, you know, fem- femininity and sex role stereotyping and uh, did things that, you know, they, they said women can't do. And like I said, it was an iconic place that a lot of women visited. It was it, and, and had that vision of there's another way to live that is freer. And, uh, and yeah, and so we, um, yeah, we created a new paradigm 
that's there and maybe now it seems to be a historical paradigm but I do think it sort of has ripples and it went out and influenced the general culture of, um, you know, Australia in general and what women can do. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. 